Live from the belly of a wooden horse. Uh, okay. This is Derailed Trains of Thoughts. Okay, Nick, this is one of the strangest locations you've dragged me to. At least it's not Wooden Badger. I what? <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're in we're inside this giant wooden horse, and there's all these people telling us to be quiet, but we're like, we gotta get this podcast done. We only do one a month, anyways. It, we better do this pretty quick, Nick. Yeah. They look, they don't look too happy about it. Kind of mad here. about this some guy who got hit in their ankle or something. Oh, weird. I know. All right, well. I this princess, but isn't it always? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always the dames. Yeah, so. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, welcome to wherever we are, folks. And uh, hopefully we'll make this an interesting podcast for you. Uh, hopefully there's not too much of an echo here. How have you been, Nick? I've been pretty well, pretty busy. I've been in and out all month. Yeah, this has been a very busy month for you. Yeah, I'm gone, I'm here, I'm gone, I'm here. Last week, got back from a mission trip to West Virginia, leaving tomorrow, which I'll be back by the time this thing comes out. Going on family vacation. Looking good. It finally rained here. Yes. Thank <laughs> goodness. I know. Well, as you probably know, folks, it's been quite a drought around the uh, Midwest lately. Like but about 50% of the country, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of crazy. And I actually just got, uh, it's been interesting for me, too. I actually just got a new job at a new place. We'll be transitioning out of working desk clerk stuff and doing more full-time videography. Nice. So that'll be fun. I'm not sure how it's going to affect some of the other projects that I had originally planned to work on. Like, we got a lot of projects now, Tim. Well, yeah. Well, between doing that videography for that and for my church, I'm going to be like, I'm not sure I'm going to actually have a chance to do the the side project that I the video uh, oh, side yeah. video is like. I'm going to be going to be editing enough video yeah. as it is. I don't know. So. Uh, we'll we'll see, but but we'll always be here for you, listeners, to do our biweekly or monthly, or monthly or bimonthly. Or it's more it's monthly now, semi-annual or <laughs> <laughs> or somewhat regular podcast. Just because we're here less doesn't mean it's less awesome. <laughs> there you go. But we'll move on with that and get into the main highlight, what you're all waiting for, and that is our story school. So today, folks, we're going to be talking about what makes a classic. And of course, if we knew this verbatim, that means we'd all we'd be very published, celebrated writers right now. But we'll give this our best shot. Yes. <laughs> well, because classic's kind of a slippery term. Depends who you talk to. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certain things that most people say. Yes, this is a classic. Yes, you know? definitely. There's something written by Homer. People call discover it call a classic uh-huh. a lot of, you know there's a lot of things like you know dickens is classic mark twain but then get into more iffy things you know especially if it's more modern you got to like instant classic is it can you what do you think can you be an instant classic uh, or does time is time necessary time is a is a very important factor because i'm sure i know there's there's some stories that people thought a bestseller of the day, but several years down the road, no one remembers anymore. And and you can't you can't pronounce it a classic upon arrival if you're the company putting it out. I always used to make fun of like Disney, like on their home video sets. <laughs> yeah. They say Walt Disney classic, or even better, like the Walt Disney masterpiece. And I'd be like, that came out in the theaters like a year ago. You, <laughs> you can't call it a classic if it's less than like ten years old. Well, so I was thinking, here's my, uh, 
I got four things I think make a classic. Okay. You can argue them or give examples or pull them apart. I had a couple of things too, so we'll see if any of these are okay. on the same We'll thing. just take one at a time then. Sure. Okay. Um, I have foundational. Okay. Meaning a classic has to change how things work or how artists after them do things or think about things. Right. Yeah. And this is one I kind of thought of something that defines the genre in a lot of ways. Which I think is why it's harder to get classics as you get farther away from the birthplace of Story the tell. novel, of mm. the movie. Right. I mean, you can still, but there's more and more people making stuff and less and less of it is truly shifting how people think about the medium. Right. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's and let's talk about some examples here. I'll throw Dickens out there because he's kind of the English literature version because he, you know, he basically uh, solidified and... There were a lot of people serializing novels at the time, but mm-hmm. he was, you know, the one that made it into kind of an art form, I guess, or at least he would talk about, I had to get into my other things that I was going to mention. Okay, let me move away from Dickens. I'll bring him up for another one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the Roman classics or the Greek classics mm-hmm. or even the, you know, they kind of sh- determined how the West thinks, you know, Aristotle and Plato. I mean, those are not fiction. Well, so, I mean, there's also the, you know, the Oedipus Rex. Yeah. You know? They, even Freud's talking about Oedipus, and you know they they did, even those philosophers though they did do some writing about mainly they were focusing on uh, plays and yeah. dramatic works, but still same principle. Well, because dramatic works actually I, the novel as it stands really wasn't a form. I mean, you had That's epics true. which were yeah. all in poetry. You know, mm-hmm. the Odyssey and the Iliad are poetic, or Beowulf, or Beowulf, and Beowulf is classical because it's found it. It's like the the epitome of what that time period's literature was, or mm-hmm. at least what we have. <laughs> right. Yeah. And sometimes it's easy to be good classic because you're the only one that survived. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Or you're the epic of Gilgamesh and, you know. Right. Or uh, the Canterbury Tales. Canterbury Tales, exactly. Um, and because, yeah, because in a lot of that, you know, in that time, if you had books, you were talking, you know, it was the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, most actual fictional stories were more often plays until you had printing press. And I suppose really, when did the novel really start taking off as a form? See, I don't, I don't know the exact dates. I always think it's somewhere around the Dickens time. Yeah, I always think of it as a Victorian era yeah. sort of um, invention. Mm-hmm. At least, I, at least in the West. I don't know. I mean, you got this tale of Genji thing in China, in Japan. Oh, really? I don't know how old it is, but it's considered. Or Don Quixote is one of the first novels. That's true. That goes back to like, I guess it's like the end of the uh, Middle Ages yeah. is kind of when it's like it was in the like 1600s when that came out. Uh, sounds right. Okay, but then I guess in in the novel, then you've you've got your uh, your specific works that really define genres like. Treasure Island, Tre- yeah. Pirates, um, Sherlock Holmes, Detective Story. Although he's even even though he's not really the original mystery writer, he kind of defines. Yeah, you know, that's why Conan's classic. He kind of defines that you know barbarian. You know because there's a yeah. uh, friend Nathan was telling me about um, Call the Conqueror, which by the same guy, but never went off in the same manner. Mm-hmm. So it didn't define the genre. Or in the, well, the same author as a. Uh, Tarzan, Edgar Rice yeah. Burroughs, who, you know, Tarzan is kind of a genre of his yeah. own. <laughs> yeah. But then also he did the John Carter of Mars, which really influenced a lot of the science fiction that came on later. Yeah. Fortunately, the movie didn't catch on quite as big because everyone else had already done the ideas. Yeah. But um, I know uh, I remember reading The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which was he was a contemporary of Dickens. Apparently, it's one of the first solid mysteries. Hmm. Um, 
Well, because they, they credit to Edgar Allan Poe yeah. with really creating the mystery genre. Well, that's then... more of a short... He never wrote novels, did he? Uh, or did I don't he? think... Uh, not that I know of. But yeah, yeah he's known, he's more known for short stories. And that... he really... Yeah, and his are classic. He kind of focused the short story. True. Well, and that's why Hemingway's classic, because he kind of reinvented a style of writing. Mm-hmm. There's this, uh, you know, this very sparse, staccato sort of way of writing things. Um, Mark Twain is classic because it's like kind of summarizes America, you know, so it's like the American classic. Right. I guess if we were looking in terms of modern of a medium that's still is still very new and is constantly coming up with the classics seem more regular because they're more new in film. You've got movies like, well, Star Wars is which clearly is, classic. Yeah, which, you know, defined a whole way of making movies. Basically created, well, that and Jaws basically created the blockbuster. Yeah. I mean, you had your major motion pictures before, but not to the extent of what we see today was really derived from Jaws and Star Wars yeah. and Indiana Jones. And... Well, it's going back to novels. Lord of the Rings, part of the reason it has its status is because it, it is fantasy. I mean, yeah. the first... Yeah, it, or at least the first big one like that. The first modern fantasy. I mean, Mon, yeah. you, you had your fairy tales and stuff, and you you had your King Arthur and stuff like that. But but yeah, definitely the first. There's definitely a fantasy before Lord of the Rings and it's, after yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and then, I think there's a lot of movies like that, like before Star Wars, after Star Wars. Yeah, or, you know. Well, that's why. Like, so I sometimes I was wondering one thing about this, like Avatar. You know, mm. everyone it was wonderfully popular, but is it? substance enough to be a classic in 10 years i yeah. mean technology wise maybe but is that enough i think the jury is still out on that because you it's a very divided camp right now i don't think that even despite how much money it made i don't think it will have quite the the power of star wars yeah. just because we're in such a blockbuster heavy period right now i don't know it's hard for me but then you never know there's some kids I mean, I some kids will grow up with it's like oh man avatar that was a movie that changed my life zach when we were on this mission trip he was he was wanting to beat up some of our kids but they had never seen star wars and we're like how what what, what are you doing what are you watching <laughs> i mean I mean, granted, I grew up, I was born in 1980, you know, the year of Empire Strikes Back, and, mm-hmm. uh, and my parents showed it, but I sometimes feel like parents aren't showing their kids formational, important, I mean, even if you don't like Star Wars, yeah, you know, it's kind of an important movie. I mean, like, the entire culture can, you know, it's, quote lines from it. It is amazing, actually, for as uh, much of a cinematic society as we are, how some kids can be... Very cinema illiterate in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And movies that, you know, have made a huge impact on our culture. And they still just, are. And still are. But We're sometimes... not talking Citizen Kane, you know, <laughs> which I think everyone should watch, but it's a little less accessible. Yeah. And it's not like everyone has to see a Citizen Kane. Now, if you're going to do anything, if you're going to be in- interested in film and try to be a film buff at all, you have to see <laughs> Citizen Kane. But other than that... So I'm going to I'm going to jump off the Avatar. The other one I had another of the things that it needs to be popular. Mm-hmm. This is a tricky one because there are some. I think there's popular in the the citizen sense and there's popular in the critical sense. Yeah, how many best pictures, uh, best picture Oscar winners from the past have we never heard of? <laughs> like no and, one knows anymore. You know, and then there's some classic films that no one watches outside of film school. <laughs> This and, is I don't true. Know, and I don't know whether that's because it just we were semantically illiterate, mm-hmm. or whether while it was foundational, it's really not the, a story that holds up over time. It's an interesting and, thing because this is what I think Avatar might be. You know, maybe say even it is foundational in this whole technology aspect. It was real popular, but maybe it's not foundational enough, or maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't last in the subconscious of culture. 
enough. That is an interesting point because you do have that branch of of books or movies that are really influential and inform the creator's work, but is not necessarily prominent in public consciousness. Yeah. Interesting. I was going to tell Brian this sometime about uh, our cinema selections. I've actually recently, well, somewhat recently, seen two different cartoons that actually included elements from movies that we've talked about in cinema selections, which, you know, Brian doesn't yeah. pick the most well-known stuff. But, like, there's an entire episode of Tailspin called Lost Horizons. <laughs> uh, no, called Lost Horizons, which basically mirrors that movie. Like, Baloo actually nice. lands in this, like, secluded area. Except I think they call it Pandala because it's, like, populated by panda bears. Yeah. And they, they appear to be all very peaceful, except... In an inversion in this one, like after Baloo leaves, they follow him and they go attack Cape Suzette. And there's this entire like war scene. <laughs> Very ironically, I heard this episode was actually pulled from syndication for a while because it I mean, it's very tame by today's standards, but it's actually like warfare with like these animals and stuff. <laughs> And then more recently, in Phineas and Ferb, I saw a reference to Night of a Hunter. There was a character who had like the letters tattooed on her on her fingers. Nice. <laughs> and she did the whole like wrestling with her hands thing. Like kids would never, most adults wouldn't even recognize that yeah. reference. But it's in these. It's these films are in well, these creators. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the thing because I think there's a certain aspect of classical movies, music, books that are classical in the sense that they influence. The creators mm -hmm. that if you're going to be a creator, you have to see what came before, but they haven't lasted in popular culture for whatever reason. Yeah, that's true. But they still inf influence the well, works. Yeah, exactly. The Battleship Potemkin is a very big example in that, film. That I know a number of directors who, you know, that's a big one. Citizen Kane always comes up. I mm -hmm. read, uh, maybe it was an article you sent me about the new Batman movie. Okay, yeah. Um, influenced somewhat the cinematography somewhat influenced by metropolis oh yeah that's right. the up and down economic mm -hmm. thing right right but at the same time like we said there's you'll have some that are movies or books that might have been critically praised at the time but no one really remembers them yeah. and i think that's something that's the popularity from the audience that's something that you really can't predict for it to be a classic, there has to be something that really resonates with an audience. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Treasure Island wasn't the first adventure book around Robert Louis Stevenson's yeah. time, but it became a very influential. You know, the, there's motifs from there that that repeated themselves. The treasure map. And, and I all think that that's partly why stuff. we need time to determine classics, so you can kind of see what what which of these still resonate with people mm -hmm. after 10, 20 years. And it's interesting that sometimes even these famous authors, some of their other works won't. I mean, no one remember, hardly anyone remembers any of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's books besides Sherlock Holmes, yeah. even though that frustrated him at the time. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson, people remember Treasure Island, Kidnapped, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's also a really cool uh, medieval book that he wrote called The Black Arrow, um, which is kind of fun Robin Hood stuff, but it's not really nearly as famous as the other ones are. It is, it's interesting because when you find an author, find an author, then you can start reading the lesser works and think like, oh, this is still good. Yeah. Or, and sometimes you can only see a little difference between why this went off and that went off. But usually it's some sort of just, mm -hmm. I guess it's, I'm going to throw in my third one here. Okay, go for it. Which is, uh, it has some sort of universal, some sort of universal powerful idea. Something that touches the audience, that mm -hmm. lasts over time. Yeah. And I think this classical books like Les Mis. Mm -hmm. I mean, half of Les Mis is steeped in... 18th or 19th century French geography and history and stuff, that, but it lasts because the the themes mm. are so powerful. 
are still universal. Are still universal because mm-hmm. there's some. I mean, and that's why I think a lot of people read the bridge version. They cut out all the all the not like Victor Hugo just loved Paris and constantly. There's like 50 pages about the Battle of Waterloo and you know all this <laughs> French history that it's kind of hard for an American who doesn't, unless you know your French history at least a little bit. Sure. But so much of the you know the guilt and redemption and loss and it's just done really really well. And it's all tied into that to an extent. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think that's what you know. Hunchback of Notre Dame. I haven't read same sort of. I don't know. Okay, Victor Hugo still again. You know, but keeps getting remade because there's certain ideas that keep fascinating people. I think that's why certain comic book heroes, you know, mm-hmm. play well. And other ones, they might, they might have interest in comics, but they never play well in a popular setting. They never. Yeah, it's true. They never get as big as. Uh... Like, as cool as the Atom is, he's never going to be quite as popular as Superman. Because, because yeah, he just doesn't have the character dimension that makes really gripping stories, necessarily. Mm-hmm. At I least... Mean, you could do it... In the comic, you might be able to write a whole series, you know, a good six-issue thing, really digging into him, but yeah. he's not inherently awesome. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I wonder if there's certain um, genres or whatnot that there's a certain threshold of interest in it like i mean you're gonna have a lot of people will read lord of the rings just to see what the big deal is yeah. but then a, a certain percentage of that will go on and read more fantasy stuff mm-hmm. i mean i haven't i love lord of the rings but i haven't gone and read um you know end, end of time or the wheel of time wheel or of all time. these uh, all well that's kind of what's be- people have, but. <laughs> okay but i'm still i'm not not a big fantasy fiction yeah. reader well that's that's the interesting thing classic also changed the more narrow your genre gets you know, classics in a general sense, you know, Lord of the Rings. When you get into a fancy setting, then you start That's adding true. other novels, you know. Mm-hmm. You got, uh, my brain went dead. But there's all kinds of, you know. Subgenres. Subgenres. You know, if you're fancy, then here's the classics in fantasy, which right. a general audience might not even care about. Mm-hmm. Here's the classics in... In mystery, and then you might get Father Brown, who you never would hear about. Yeah, that's true. In a general sense. What was that? Uh, remember that chart I sent you, or oh, you sent me yep. with the, like all the different. There's a, like a long, big flow chart if you're interested in like fantasy, fantasy science, science fiction, fiction yeah. and like there are all these different avenues. You know, military science fi. Try this, or not on a different planet. On, yep. on this planet, try this one and stuff like that. And I mean, like a hundred books, some books on this thing. And, and most of them I recognize name wise, uh-huh. even though I've never read them or don't know what they're about. But, but... they generally can be kind of divided into all these little mm-hmm. subgenres. And uh, and yeah, most of them aren't going to be classics. Well, it's sort of like what we talked about back in the originality thing. Sometimes if you try to be too original and too setting this thing, when you're trying to set too much n- new ground, then there's not going to be people interested in yeah. it as much because they don't know where to come at it sometimes. Yeah. But then other times you come up with something completely out there, like, say, Avatar The Last Airbender. That's a pretty new and original kind of yeah. show, um, and it manages to, to grab a huge audience. It, it is balanced being original and being also having those universal Ideas. ideas, yeah, you know, because I mean, Avatar borrows from a lot of stuff, like yeah, Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, the, and it, we're at the point now, especially in media, where there's a lot of derivative sounds wrong, and so I'm not. That's not. I don't mean derivative in the bad sense, but there's a lot of history be- behind most of what people are writing. Mm-hmm. Most people are writing not like this, and I guess it's always been that way. But like the really old stuff, like Homer, you don't know what he got it from. Yeah, he's all that's left. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I mean, and I think cinema is kind of coming into that same thing a little, maybe a little early, just because it's such, you know, there's so much being done. But uh, it does get harder and harder for creators, even there. I mean, I talked about how 
in some ways, you know, we've seen in the last hundred years, you could point to a lot of different genre setters, yeah. if you will, but probably more difficult nowadays. I mean, like... When we're doing things like Hugo, which yeah. is basically praising old movies. I mean, you're having movies about old movies. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in a very new I, setting with new technology, but it's about old movies. And it's not a bad thing, but we're already at the spot where we're looking referencing back. to each other. I, 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 wonder, I don't think it's bad. I wonder if video games will continue to be the next sort of trying to set new boundaries and figure out... Because I know there's they're still experimenting a lot with trying to... How you make choices and... Mm-hmm, and it may not make the cinematics kind of overwhelm it so you feel like you're playing a movie and making a different kind of storytelling experience. Yeah, the only thing... I think there's a lot of storytelling potential in video games. I just don't know sometimes whether the interactive part of... You know, the more... The more you give choice to the, to the to the player, the less it becomes universal because mm-hmm. then everything becomes so personalized, and yeah. you can't you got the your stories don't get as I don't know. It, I, it's tricky though, Nick, because we haven't played a lot of the. Modern I know I haven't stuff. played modern stuff. Yeah, I'm talking completely theoretical at this point. <laughs> you know, I'm still like, you know, on Saturday, I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna start up my Final Fantasy VI on my Super Nintendo. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> I know I know they've said Mass Effect has a very interesting in terms of like the storyline and how it cuz I guess the Mass Effect series from what someone was telling me <laughs> we know nothing. <laughs> yeah, we, we we really don't. But I but I guess like the choices you make in the first game carry on into the second game. Really? And then into even into the third game. Well, that's pretty cool. That's which, yeah, because like if, I mean, it probably takes a lot of space in your Xbox hard drive or what have yeah. you. But I guess like, you know, people talk about this stuff online all the time. And I guess I heard that like some people playing Mass Effect 3, which came out fairly recently, they'll be describing something and other people are like, really? I don't have anything like that going on. Weird. Like it actually, actually, your choices will actually change the world, and so then there's like you know you have to consider Man, the consequences. That's gonna be complicated of, to put together. I imagine so. Um, now, from what I understand, a lot of people there's a big uproar about the ending for oh, it. Okay. So it's like it was another one of endings are really hard. Yeah, especially on a game that gives how many different endings do they have. I, or do they just kind of meld them into the one thing, somehow? I, I think the problem was yeah they 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 meld all these experiences into like. Three different endings. Oh. So I think that might have been a big problem. And endings are hard anyway. I mean, a really good, solid ending for a yeah. important story. Especially for an ongoing one like that. Yeah. But, and... but we've gone a long way from classics. Yeah, that's true. Then my fourth thing Go was that it. it has to be technically good. Mm. I don't know if it has to be. That helps. I mean, if you're only technically good, like you're, but you don't have the popular appeal, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily work. But if you're... I think I, I think your technically good would probably fall in fairly well with the genre setting thing. Oh, okay. I can see that. I mean, I I agree. That's definitely a part of it. And you're not going to see something famous have bad writing, at least. Yeah, in, not generally. Not well, generally. unless occasional happen if it if the ideas are so like uh like um Anran um like a Fountainhead and um what's the other oh, one with John, oh Anran John, the, yeah. the author with yeah. John Galt what's the um Fountainhead, the one I read. What's the other one? I'm not sure. I really should know the exact one. <laughs> I've heard people complain about the writing style. There's just, it's not, like when I read Fountainhead, I didn't mind it. But there's just a lot of text for not necessarily a lot of stuff. And okay. sometimes people say that in real time. Too much description and not enough. So they'll make, they'll make technical assaults on it. But the ideas are so captivating that people don't care about the, the literariness. 
Uh-huh. At, at, once they hit a certain threshold, you know, once you're telling a good story, they don't care that it's that is that extra ten percent. That's that may, that's a good point, and I guess that you could say that for a lot of pulpy sort of things. Like, although hmm, Flash Gordon, for example, I'm sure is is very influential. I I, I know that's a big influence for yeah. Star Wars, although. No one really remembers. I mean, there's there's a very small audience yeah. that still follows and remembers finally Flash Gordon well, and stuff. Godzilla? Godzilla. I mean, yeah. that's a classic, but... But it's ridiculous. Well, the first one's not quite as ridiculous. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure if I've actually seen the, the, the original. The first original one. Japanese one is is much more uh, serious okay. than the later ones get. But still, you're talking about, like, a giant lizard that, like, it's, stomps well, up. Well, exactly. Yeah, I know. But, it, you know, it's, it's very influential after that. Uh-huh. Um, and it's basically, a you know, some sort of sci-fi old movie classic. That's true. But technically, it is kind of pulpy, kind of, mm-hmm. you know. A lot of a lot of the Tarzan stuff's sure. not bad writing by any means, but from a, from an English professor's point of view, is you know, it's a little more uh, sensationalized, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a little mm-hmm. over the top. Right, you know, which is not which is part of the appeal, actually. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes that's and, and, you get maybe, some really interesting, meaningful stories that way. And and maybe maybe why maybe it's not so much that you're technically awesome, but that you're technically powerful. I mean that you can be you can almost break away from the norm and be better. If that makes sense to, within certain limits. I think so. There's a certain amount of let's say to use a phrase that I use in describing Doctor Who yeah. emotional intelligence yeah it's like it, it touches on your emotions on the the parts that wants to imagine and big things yeah. and stuff even if it's not the most logically consistent sort yeah. of story yeah but he has to touch yeah he has to touch your emotions and simultaneously move the form forward in some way mm-hmm and something that sets up these iconic yeah sort of and, things. and being iconics probably the most important thing in some ways right I mean, that's what why Night of the Hundred, the, the things on the right. fingers, I mean, that shows mm-hmm. up in other places, too. Yeah. And, you know, going back again to our originality uh, episode, you know, we talked in that one about how, in some ways, originality is overrated, that, uh, you know, you should just try to tell the story that you, that needs to be told and yeah. not be too caught up in how original it is. But at the same time, the more original some of your, I mean, plot structure-wise, that's maybe not as important, although, you know, you have something really crazy original plot structure like say memento yeah and which people remember for that but but i wonder if it's more characters and stuff it's it's hard to define how much is original how much is not yeah. original enough and it's, and it has to be very much itself i mean can't feel yes. like it's right try, like, it can't feel like it's trying I was watching a Comic-Con panel for Phineas and Ferb the other, yeah. the other day, which <laughs> Nick knows that this is my new favorite <laughs> cartoon. Uh, I lo- It's such an intelligent uh, kid's cartoon and stuff. It's it's really one of the most modern things that's uh, like right up there with, with uh, um, Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, animation that the entire family can enjoy. Yeah. And anyway, the... Creators, producers, they were they were saying how a lot of their decisions get spaced. I mean, not solely, but they often go in directions of what's not being done in kids shows nowadays. I think that's where, like, the design for the character of Phineas is basically his head is like a triangle. Yeah, and uh, and someone asked him why why a triangle, and he's like, well, I've never seen a cartoon character <laughs> whose <laughs> whose face is basically shaped this way, so he was experimenting. 
um, another person asked him, have you ever thought about having a rival for such and such character? And they were like, no, we see a lot of shows doing that. And we, we kind of felt like we didn't really want to. And it's little decisions like that that really make it stand out as, you know, something unique. It's something not, not following the crowd. Just right. Having and a sense of, you know, yeah, not feeling like we have to do such and such storyline because every show like this. Does well, that's why, it's you know, my my unofficial uh, subtitle for this podcast was um of this of story school is not just what makes the classic, but what, what was it? What, why um, every fantasy? Oh, is what, Lord of the... what? Why every fantasy is the next Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Um, and actually, it's not so much that now. For a long time, it was like this is the next Lord of the Rings, or this is the best world since Tolkien, or now because they're death, and that's not even the point. I mean, it's now. Time is like this is the next Harry Potter, or this next is the next Hunger Games, the next or... Twilight. Yeah, yeah. And that's missing the point. Yeah. You don't want to be the next Lord of the Rings. Who would be the next? What it hasn't been yet. See, this is the thing, though, where uh, marketers and artists always differ. <laughs> marketers like having things be similar to something else that was popular yeah. because then they know how to sell it. Yeah. Artists like, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> what, what you, I mean, if you're the next Lord of Rings, meaning it's the next thing that's as intriguing or as... Expansive, like, epic. Yeah, because uh, when I first started Wheel of Time, there was from... Was it Piers Anthony or uh, Orson Scott Card had something on, t on Eye of the World? Like best world building or in the uh, in the air of Tolkien or whatever, mm -hmm. and the thing is, as far as the sort of moral atmospheric writing style of Tolkien, it's nothing like it. Mm -hmm. But it does have an entire its own moral, social economic world building thing that's completely its own, and what, which is why I like it. And I think why everyone else fell in love with it because it did its thing really, really well. But it wasn't. I couldn't compare it to Tolkien. I mean, it doesn't feel anything like. I mean, uh -huh. there's some similarities in the first book of you know leaving their hometown and running from people chasing them and stuff sure. like that. But well, that's just the hero's journey. Exactly. <laughs> so. Well, we've we've had quite an expansive discussion yeah, about actually, this. Actually, that went longer than I thought it might. <laughs> and I don't know what the takeaway. I guess this is not one I'm going to try to summarize because, like I said, we don't know. There's no formula for making so, a classic. Real quick question. What makes a cult classic? Actually, I had, I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the podcast before, but I, I had a professor say oh, something I think about, did. yeah. Yeah, I'll, and I'll just reiterate it, even in case I did say it, that uh, he, he suggested that a cult classic actually has something wrong with it, sort of a flaw that, that uh, kept it from being popular on a widespread scale, and that it becomes a cult classic because certain people see, you know, they fill in that flaw with their own self. It's like the whole abstract thing. Okay. The more abstract something is, then you, you're able to kind of project your own beliefs so, and impressions on so it. So it attaches very intensely, but with a subset of people. I think I think so. That's like the kind labyrinth of, is that way. Yeah. Either the subset of people are like, this is completely awesome, and other people are like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. And when he said that, I was a little, I objected to it a little bit at first because he put it in sort of a negative turn, like there was something wrong with yeah. it. But when we talked about it, it's like, okay, I understand where you're coming from and that, yeah, there is some reason that it didn't affect. And even, and sometimes just because there's something that you know is, you know, a little flawed or a little messed up about the story, that's all the more reason to like yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. I mean, sometimes that's the reason, I remember, I don't know how to call it, call it classic, but that was part of the reason. I thought Blade in the Water was such a fascinating movie. I mean, mm -hmm. it drove people nuts because it was just, the structure is insane. It's ridiculous I mean, in some ways, yeah. I think for a certain subsection of people, it's like, that's cool. Uh -huh. You know, there's something special about that. They really like that idea. And yeah. You fall in love with that idea, even if, you know, you're not in love with so the have, entire movie. So you have 10,000, so, you know, so there's cult class for everything now. <laughs> well, that's the thing about the internet. 
you know, you, you meet people who are interested in the same thing, whether that's the most ridiculous thing in the world to yeah. be interested in or not. Yeah, very true. Good and bad. <laughs> all right. So, all right. Hopefully that made sense. If you have to listen to this, I'd like to hear what sort of classics you enjoy. Sometimes you watch a classic because... Because you, you have want, to. You want, or you want to know the history or where this came from or... Mm-hmm. You know, but there's some of them that are like, okay, this is really good. No wonder I... And then everyone reads this. And then there'll be other ones and like, why? <laughs> yeah, you're like, what was... Like, oh, back in the day, this was the first time. And you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, some old older movies that have influenced newer ones have kind of faded in response because it's been done so much bigger and better now yeah. in some ways. There were stepping stones. Yep, definitely. But, all right, we'll move on because this has gone on long yeah. enough and we'll go into our soundtrack. soundtrack we uh nick had this idea for his and i'm i'm totally stealing for this <laughs> we're both taking a song from a very classic video game series uh mario the theme that everyone and their brother knows <laughs> probably most people around the world <laughs> probably although you you're doing it yours is from which we'll play at the end of the show is from the original mario oh, brothers true. yours is from Mar- mine is from super mario world which is not quite as known but quite known but yes yeah, still quite known i think they still use it for various stuff yeah. you know mario they they reuse their own music a lot because you know it's koji kondo uh, he, he can write the so many wonderful melodic things definitely and so this is a uh, remix from super mario world very basic kind of theme this is by Bladiator, and it's called Grand Vals mario is that right i assume so i don't know i'm not sure at Vals valets Anyway, it's a very classical kind of piano solo, so I hope you enjoy.
right, welcome back. Yes, I really enjoyed that. It's a really fun song. It is. All right, for our next segment, we present for you a bit of story. Okay, Nick, you better set this one okay. up. Okay, so we're going to talk about classics and like, hey, Tim, we need something to put in the second half. Why don't we have this journal from the story project that had some reference to classical books? And when I went back to it, it didn't have quite as much as I had thought. <laughs> but it still it ties in pretty well, it fits, I think. It fits pretty well in the story project. Again, if you're the first time listener, shame on you. Um, <laughs> the story project was a project we did in 2005 and six, I believe, mm-hmm. um, where about six of us wrote fictional journals of these people who lived together in this mansion. They were all writers, and they wrote journals and this about was, what was happening. And we posted them online. It was sort of like fictional blogs, yeah. basically. Um, and one of them was Brittany Bontrager, who was this 16-year-old girl. She was too smart for her own good, kind of uh, overly emotional, kind of stubborn, you know, an interesting little quirky character. Mm-hmm. And this is written from her point of view. And uh, it's Halloween. It's like right before basically everyone's going to go. The whole project gets dissolved. Yeah, pretty close. So you'll hear you'll hear her impressions of some of the other characters. The main one I guess you should know about is Vincent, who is kind of a... Is it her uncle? Her uncle, a very aloof kind of personality. Uh, germaphobe. <laughs> germaphobe, but, always, but likes things very punctual. Sort of like a very dark version of Monk to an yeah. extent. Yeah, I, I can see that. Not dark as in, like, depressing character, but dark as in, like, mysterious. Mysterious. <laughs> and this has been read by uh, Brianna Lehman, who was once one of my students, and she hopes to go into writing, and I knew she'd like drama and stuff, so I was like, hey, you want to read this for me? She's like, yes, absolutely. She was actually really excited about it. Oh, that's cool. So we stuck in her room and left her there, and this is what came out. <laughs> that, sound, that sounds really disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> sounds wrong, Nick. That sounds wrong. How old is she? How old is she again? She's 18. Eight, okay, so pretty close to Brittany's actual age. Yeah, because Brittany was, what, 16? anything at that point. I think, oh yeah, it sounds right. So, yes, enjoy. Amongst the Dead by Brittany Bontrager. October 31st. I wore a princess costume tonight. Originally, I was going to be more creative. I planned to dress in French peasant clothing and knock on each door while knitting. But when I told this to Sarah, she didn't get it. Are you a grandmother? She asked. I'm Madame Defarge, I explained heatedly, from Dickens. So then I thought I'd try again and dress like a French princess, but I'd wear a black mask over my head so that in the dark, it looked like I had no head. In one hand, I'd carry a cake. That was supposed to give it away. Sarah didn't get this one either. Marie Antoinette, I shouted after giving more than enough clues. You know, let them eat cake. If you're so set on being French, Sarah said, Why don't you dress up as an order of french fries? You know, I like Sarah, but that was a really dumb suggestion. At least as a princess, people recognize me and I get to wear a pretty dress. I met everyone else in the dining room at 4.58. Last Saturday, everyone got an invitation delivered to his room. All it said was, meet in the dining room at 5 o'clock sharp on All Hallows' Eve. Please dress appropriately. The sender was a minor mystery in the mansion until I explained it had to be Vincent. Who else would underline sharp and call tonight All Hallows' Eve? Everyone but Sarah was there already when I arrived. Bob resembled Mario rather convincingly. Dr. Zay wore a long brown coat and a scarf that reached to the ground and wrapped around him two or three times. It must have been more than 15 feet long. 
His hair was a mess. At his side was what looked like a metal dog. Judy had a picnic basket and a red riding hood. Lance wore the Hercules costume I made for him last school year. It caught me off guard to see him holding Miss Krieger's hand. I should not have to see my English teacher outside of school, and I certainly should not have to see her dressed up like Xena. I won't be able to concentrate in class the rest of the year. Katrina was dressed like Trinity from The Matrix. What is it about us writers, warriors and royalty all? Perhaps that's what we were all meant to be. Bill shocked me more than anyone. His hair was slicked. He wore professional spectacles, carried a briefcase, dress slacks, starched dress shirt, necktie. Nice costume, Phil, I said. Do you know who I am? Your good twin? Nope. A preppy? Closer. A snob? Not quite. What? I snapped. He kept smiling at me smugly, almost laughing. Just tell me! I'm the male version of you. I so wanted to slap him. Vincent entered at precisely five. He wore princely clothes and an iron mask. Where was Sarah? I wanted to show her that Vincent, at least, had a creative French outfit. A commentary on your brother? Katrina asked him. A way to filter the outside air, he said simply. He looked around. Where is Sarah? She told me she's coming, Bob said. She is late. We will begin without her. He looked at each of us again. This will be our last All Hallows' Eve together. Am I right in reading the signs, Katrina? We looked at her. What do you want, Vincent? Yes, I have, then. It is well. Tonight we honor those who have left us. In the entry hall, you will find six large boxes full of books. These are the works of authors who are long dead. You will take these boxes into the city. When you knock on the door, instead of saying, trick or treat, you will hand them a book and say, here is your treat. Everyone was silent. I spoke out. Can we take their candy, too? The purpose in giving the books is to enrich others, not to overindulge ourselves. Tonight is much more important than mere candy. But we can take the candy if we want to? I asked. That is not my concern, he said. I will remain here for any trick-or-treaters who may come to the mansion. Just then, Sarah rushed into the room, waddling awkwardly in her costume. Am I late? She was an order of french fries. None of us were very eager to start. Not only was it a dumb idea, it could only be embarrassing. We had all met tonight because Vincent called us. Everyone respected Vincent, if only a little, because he never asked anything of us. I think that's the only reason we heaved the heavy boxes of books and headed into town. Bill and I rode with Bob and Sarah. When we found a good street with lots of lights on in the windows, we split up. Sarah tried to go with Bob, but I wasn't going to get left with Phil tonight. Not tonight, when I already knew I was going to be a fool. Even walking around with a pack of french fries is better than trotting with a bad imitation of myself. As Sarah and I held the box between us and struggled to walk, Sarah fell more than once because of her costume, I glanced at the spines in the light from the street lamps. Chesterton, Austin, Dumas, Collins, Melville, Hawthorne, Tolkien, Homer, Dickens, Hugo, Bunyan, Dante, Carroll, Shakespeare, Tennyson, Verne, Swift, Tolstoy, McDonald's, Mallory, Louis Stevenson, Baum, Defoe. No one really wanted to read these books. They wanted to have read them. Sarah and I knocked on a door together. An older lady opened it, looked at us. I could tell she thought us too old for trick-or-treating. I pulled out Idols of the King at random. Here's a treat from us, I said. Sarah nodded her head and said, Yep, take it. Happy Halloween. 
so guiltily that I'm sure the lady thought we were nuts. We scurried away from the door. Again and again we did this. Sometimes we get a hesitant thank you. Sometimes the person would laugh as if we were eight years old and try to give us candy instead. But I remember one young man who stared at us uncomprehendingly, then after a moment said, Do you have the man in the iron mask? I saw the movie. I thought the book might be better. We did have it. Sarah handed it to him. He thanked us. We still had a few books. I had purposely avoided giving away Les Miserables. Hey, Sarah, you want any of these? Well, I thought I'd take Journey to the Center of the Earth if no one else wanted it. And this one's mine. Well, only a few more to get rid of, then. And as Sarah and I stumped down the street, looking for a house, passing decorations of skeletons and cobwebs and coffins, I realized we carried dead men in the box between us, and that these men spoke whenever someone opened the covers of these books, the coffin of their thoughts. Their voices, whether right or wrong, spoke still as if they sat beside us. And this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to write. It was a sobering thing to realize whatever I wrote might be saved forever, that it might express my pig-headed ideas, or that it might still speak truth long after I had died. How is it that my uncle, so fearful of people, knows what people need more than those who are such people? I gave the last two, The Man Who Was Thursday and Notes from the Underground, not caring if the people read them. Maybe they would. That was enough. back um so that was a, a glimpse into story project um kind of our our cult classic <laughs> i'm joking with tim beforehand a very loose definition of the term but, but it, yeah. it was very uh important for us yes I mean, it taught us a lot of stuff and lasted with us a long time probably the most successful of our uh collaborative writing projects to date today so far so far um but if you are interested there are ebook versions for Pittance. And I think you could also buy a, a copy in print, right? You can buy print version still from uh, Lulu.com. Yep. Yep. And print and the ebooks are on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Smashwords. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. all over the place. We, if you ever do read it, we'd love to hear from you. Definitely. You know, we've heard from like two people. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're not going to go into a really long segment of this, but uh, we have a little extra time. Let's talk about our take on Tans. Tim mentioned it earlier in the podcast, actually, but um, The Legend of Korra yeah. has recently ended. Well, a couple months, probably by the time this comes out. I was late to the show. I was late to the show. A month or two, yeah. I watched it after it was all over on Nickelodeon. Actually, I, luckily, I'd watch it, and then they cut off all, like, except the ones I'd just not watched. <laughs> That's right. It, it was really I, close. <laughs> you are lucky because of that whole, like, direct TV thing. But um, I really enjoyed it. It is, I, it is I, a I thought great show. It's, it's very complicated, I think, to go from a show like Avatar, which is became very, very, very popular. I mean, in its circle. Yeah. And then try to do it again. But they were smart in not trying to make it immediately after the series so and, like, the, go way in the, in and the future. The, and, they, you know, they kept enough of the stuff we love about, you know, characters who are related, so we have a kind of a sense of place, but they've moved the technology forward. Mm -hmm. It was girls instead of a guy who get... Aang's very laid back. She's very aggressive. Yeah. Um, so, and the animation, top notch. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Yeah, definitely a very interesting move of 
trying to make it this uh, same universe, but in a very different show in a lot of ways. And um, like Tim pointed out, it's very political. I mean, he when he was talking to me earlier, very political in some ways. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a little bit like the prequels of Star Wars compared to the in some uh, ways the originals. You know, the originals are you know the original. There's an empire taking over, and you're the rebel, real small person trying to win. Mm-hmm. And this is like. It's all established, and things are eating away from the underbelly. Right. It's Society is, is overall good. It's not like we're in a major war. There's a major bad guy. I mean, there is a bad guy, but yeah. he's not threatening all life as we knew it, at least not at first. <laughs> now, I was saying this. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. I felt like the ending was too fast. It, I feel like we need, like, two or three more episodes. It was It was a little bit. and I know some people were a bit disappointed in the fact that they sort of felt like the bad guy had some interesting point to a certain extent. And that's the uh, people who couldn't do the special bending powers yeah. were a little looked down. And that was never really addressed again later on. What's weird, it's called Republic City and five benders are in charge of it. One from each tribe. That's, well, not, a, that's not a republic, is it? Well, I guess it, <laughs> I guess originally, like Sokka was originally part of oh, that's the true. Uh, first part. And he was not a bender. That's true. And so maybe the, maybe each of the continents just elect to have an elect a bender. Yeah, it's possible. Like I noticed there's there's two water... Well, the north and south. The north and south water yeah. bending tribes. But, but yeah, not necessarily... North and South Water Tribes, I should say. because But we don't know. Those other three members... That's true. We don't really know what they now, were or not. My other thing is, like, I like the, the Amon's backstory, but it just felt... I don't know. I don't... Sloppy's not the right word, but why we need more time. Second last episode, we have massive expositional download. Mm-hmm. It just... Well, it's interesting to me, though, because I felt like when they revealed that Tarlock had such a powerful ability, and then... And they were had showed the the uh, his father the other bender. I was like, there has to be some connection. Well, that's true. It just didn't. It it wouldn't have seen, felt natural if there had been these suddenly these two powerful ones, and then Amon just happens to be this other guy with that's this true. other really unusual ability. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea. Well, I don't know. I just felt like the last about you know the, the ending two parter really just need more space. I felt like, mm. you know, he takes because for like, it's what, 11 episodes, 12 episodes. Yeah. For like eight, nine episodes, we got the about three episodes getting you into the show. Then after that, like every episode, Cora and her friends just lose. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. And then at the end, she doesn't so much win as, reve- I mean, I don't know. It just, it just won more time at the end, I think, for a, for a switch, for a military battle, for, mm-hmm. well, like, it seems like the thematic point of the show of the first season was to get her to to connect to her spiritual self yeah and to be able to let go of because so she yeah get let go so she can do air and be a full avatar Mm -hmm. but because she loses all her powers but air which kind of cool and then in like three minutes she has all this she hits bottom and comes out and heals her Mm -hmm. i don't know it just it felt too fast which i i understood that i'd rather if you want to have another season End it with her with no powers. Uh-huh. Have a whole. Because I just remember from the first from Airbender or last Airbender. I know there's a whole episode where he's wrangling. Do I really want to be a hero? All this stuff, mm-hmm. and I felt like that could help a lot. Well, I heard actually that at one time I think they were only scheduled to this show was only scheduled to be like 13 episodes or something, and then they picked up for another like half season or or whatnot. Oh, okay. So they may have already planned this whole arc, and then it was going to end. In it ended very, very, uh, everything's tied up. Yeah. 
Which was was very surprising, yeah. especially since yeah, like you said, considering the way the second season of Avatar ended, you who knows how you, it would have. You could tell though. I think the first the first show had. I think they started out kind of at a adventuresome kid level, and then they kept pushing it. Mm-hmm. But they had they had you know a normal kid show number of episodes, so they had time to be right. silly. Ha- they had filler episodes that yeah. they could have fun with and expand things. Mm-hmm. And this really. I'm usually I like shows that have limited amounts, so you can get all the intense stuff there. I just I felt like one or two more episodes would benefit. Not like I really maybe, enjoyed it. Like maybe thirteen was a little on the short side. Yeah, yeah. and I know I know they've said that they were very purposely trying to keep it a very tight arc, like because they're they said they were inspired like by a lot of cable shows nowadays that have these very tight. What? I think like shows like Mad Men yeah. and stuff like that. They have very short seasons, mm-hmm. which what? there's something to that. No, and I think I think. Then you can focus really well on the ones you're saying. Yeah. And I, I just, it's just, my ending, I just felt like yeah. another episode for emotional, you know, for, for mm-hmm. the tying things up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know where you're coming from. I think it would have been a really harsh way to end it with her only. Well, I won't, like, you wouldn't have to do that, but somehow yeah. give her time while they're picking up the pieces or something. Mm-hmm. I saw one interesting, um, one commentator said, had a really in- interesting interpretation of that last scene because there's a shot of where like you just I think you see a tear yeah, falling down. falling over, and this commentator speculated that maybe she might have been considering suicide, oh, but they can't actually show so that, that on a Nickelodeon okay. in a kids which, show, which would would make sense because her sense. whole identity was tied up in yeah. being able to do all these things. And now she doesn't have any of that. Um, yeah. I mean, aside from the airbending, but she doesn't know anything about airbending yeah. at this point. Yeah. And and she's clearly can't be an avatar really without the, yeah doing the other. I do stuff. have to say all the uh, the characters were great. They make uh, the great thing about Korra and and Last Airbender, even the minor characters are awesome. Yeah, I mean every character is genius. Very colorful. Very mm-hmm. very colorful world. I love having you know some of the relatives in there. Yeah, like Toff's daughter. Yeah, daughter. Mm-hmm. It was great. And, and just, um, and I, I, what's, what's, what's Kenzin? Kenzin's awesome in his family with all the kids. Oh, Tenzin. Tenzin. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're the kid, his family's. Yeah, I feel like the, the writers must have more kids now. That could I, mean, I don't well know. Be. It just, it just feels like you have this, everyone's more grown up and have kids. I mean, uh, it is a more grown up show. I mean, everyone's yeah. taller. <laughs> I mean, <That's> true. <laughs> well, it, it felt like very much similar to Harry Potter sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, they grow up with the people. Mm-hmm, with the audience and a certain... So, very very much worth your time. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, don't, my Just my... my one, of the best shows, one of the best shows that was on TV yeah, this summer. it was very, very good. Definitely. Very entertaining. Even if you haven't seen Last Airbender. But this is true. You should go but see you should probably you should probably see it first. There'll be yeah, it make more sense and more fun. There'll be a few jokes that you'll get you'll appreciate more. From cabbage that. corp. <laughs> My cabbage corp. <laughs> um, well, that that'll do it for our take and tales. Yep. I will throw out here one yeah, thing just because it was re- it relates to our last episode. I did finish the space trilogy. Oh, and because uh, oh, and, you had told me that I think. Yeah, yeah, and. I will say this, um, yeah, that hideous strength does not really fit into the whole world building thing so much. That hideous strength is a very strange book in some it, ways, in like pacing and stuff. It, it's very unique. It is, it is very unique, but and yet still very Lewis. It, yeah. There's unmistakably Lewis, but it's unusual. Yeah. So take almost, that take that as a, almost experimental in some ways. Yeah, because because like I was telling him. Nick, it sort of felt, feels like it changes genres in, in different places. Like it's it's a drama of manners, and then it's a dystopia, and then it's this spiritual warfare Ted Decker sort of thing. I mean, obviously not bef- yeah. before Ted Decker, but 
And then by the end, it strangely feels like it turned into a farce <laughs> just because how completely ridiculously the evil organization is overturned at the end. It's it's a weird thing. <laughs> so it's probably why it's one of the least heard about Lewis books. It's the hardest one probably for people to wrap their heads around. It, probably. Yeah. Well, and so now the next fiction, actually, the last fiction of Lewis I need to read is Till We Have Faces. Have you what, read Pilgrim's Regress? No, I haven't read that. Okay. Oh, that's half. That's not real fic. And yeah, it's like half out. It's more mainly allegory. Yeah, I think so. Have you? Or, I have not read that. I guess the other thing I would, I, I don't know if it's, uh, have you looked at The Dark Tower at all? I don't, yeah, I've heard about it. I know nothing about it. Okay. And I think Ransom is supposed to be in it. So I really? Th I th think the rumor is that it might have been the sequel to Paralandra, and then he scrapped it and went with that hideous string. Hmm. I don't know. I, there's some interesting rumors about Yeah, I'd like about to that hunt one. that up sometime. So, Yeah. Uh, it was not completed, obviously. Yeah. But, all right. Anyway, that's we better uh, wrap this yeah. one up. <laughs> this will be a long one for once. Yeah, it's it's been a little while. But uh, next time, we'll hopefully have more of our ramblings that you'll enjoy. If you ever need to find us on our website, that is derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. You can email us at derailedtrains at gmail.com. And subscribe to us on iTunes. Yep. Look us up there. and Because um, the more, the merrier. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Uh, my soundtrack today is from, as we said before, the original Mario Brothers. It is called Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers. Okay, I guess it's not the original Mario Brothers. Yeah. Super Mario Brothers yep. from the Nintendo. It is called Mario Likes Thorazine. I don't know why he's on drugs, but he is. <laughs> um, it is remixed by, and again, I always pick the ones I can't pronounce, uh, Schnabulbula? Schnabulba. 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 <laughs> Anyways, it's a uh, it's kind of a string quartet feel, but it's very uh, interesting. Classical theme, classical music. Classical music, and I think you'll enjoy it. Cool. So I guess we'll bow out. Um, they're really telling us to be quiet. I think they're going to jump out pretty soon here. Okay. Um, um, they all got swords. I don't know what's going to go on here. Um, I, all the only thing I, I brought with me today was this bamboo stick. So I'm not uh, sure what we're going to do here. Well, I do have a pen, and they, you know what they say that. That yeah. is mightier than yeah, yeah. so will be sad. Okay. All right. Hopefully we'll <laughs> see you folks next time. This has been Tim. This has been Nick. Adios. Bye.
Um, look, if we built this large wooden badger, 